Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. On behalf of the Mercator Institute for China Studies, Merrick's, I'd like to welcome you to this lecture and the discussion with the 26th Prime Minister of Australia, the Honorable Kevin Rudd. Our topic today will be China's new multilateralism, core principles and diplomatic engagement with China. Kevin Rudd does not need any long introduction, but let me say a few words on his career and his experiences as a politician and diplomat to make it clear how special and how precious his experience as a top-level interlocutor in China diplomacy is. Mr. Rudd served as Prime Minister of Australia from 2007 to 2010 and again in 2013 and as Foreign Minister from 2010 to 2012. Before entering politics, uh, that's also an important experience, he worked as a diplomat for Australia and was posted in embassies in Stockholm and in Beijing. As Prime Minister and Foreign Minister, Mr. Rudd was very active in foreign policy leadership. He was, to give just one example, a driving force in expanding the East Asia Summit to include both the US and Russia in 2010. Currently, Kevin Rudd is the inaugural president of the New York-based Asia Society Policy Institute that Marix is also having um, close exchanges with. This institute strives to contribute to safeguarding security, prosperity, and sustainability in the Asia-Pacific region. Importantly, and I want to stress that today because this is quite an up-to-date um, work that he's doing, he has spent the past two years conducting a review of the United Nations system. And for this purpose, he served as chair of the Independent Commission on Multilateralism, where he led a study of 16 policy areas, ranging from counterterrorism um, to administrative reform. And the commission's report, titled UN 2030, Rebuilding Order in a Fragmenting World, argues that the UN is in trouble on many fronts, but capable of reinventing itself. It will require a continual process of adjusting and upgrading UN institutions to ensure that the UN system is responding to the policy challenges of our time. And China, in the reinvention of the UN, clearly plays a pivotal role too. Kevin majored in Chinese language and Chinese history. He's fluent in Mandarin and has many years of first-hand experience in managing Chinese affairs. As we also came to learn at Marix, we just talked about that uh, here, speaking and reading Chinese uh, does not necessarily make interaction with Chinese politicians and diplomats easier or frictionless. It rather makes interaction more intense, more serious and deeper, and that is what we are also aiming at today. If we take a look at all this accumulated experience, it is clear why Kevin Rudd is the ideal speaker to deal with our topic today. Kevin Rudd will present his thoughts on China's changing role in international multilateral interactions that shape our relations with China, China's new multilateralism, core principles, and diplomatic engagement with China. Kevin, it is great that you are here today. The podium is yours. Thank you so much for that very um, warm Berlin welcome. And uh, it's good to be back in this great city. I enjoy it very much. I've been uh, in and out of Berlin multiple times over many years, starting in 1989. And so uh, the transformation of this city, for me, has always been a personal delight. 
Let me now address the question of uh, how China now engages in the world in one particular domain, and that is what I describe as China's new multilateralism. Those of you who study China well know a lot about Xi Jinping. It's been my privilege to meet him on quite a number of occasions in one capacity or another. And the judgment I formed before he came to office hasn't really changed from what I've seen in the several years he's now been in office. Xi Jinping, uh, I said before he assumed the mantle of China's presidency and general secretaryship of the Chinese Communist Party, would be China's most powerful leader since Deng. Uh, now the debate is whether that is accurate or whether in fact he's China's most powerful leader since Mao. Xi Jinping has a very defined view uh, of where China should land itself domestically and where it should be heading internationally. The program of uh, domestic uh, tr economic transformation, which he articulated through the new economic reform plan, uh, is very much about underpinning China's long-term economic strength in order to underpin its national strength, in order for China not just to raise the living standards of its people, but for China to occupy a respected place in the councils of the world. Uh, Xi Jinping, if you know him, is well-schooled in the Chinese classics. He's well-schooled in classical Chinese history. He's well-read in international history, although he doesn't read foreign languages or speak them. But he's a person and a leader who has a profound view of historical context. He is not an accidental politician. He has grown up steeped deeply in the traditions of China's political leadership, and one also steeped deeply in the skills necessary to negotiate the hazardous shoals which exist within a one-party state, the Chinese Communist Party. If you were sitting in a Xi Jinping standing committee of the Politburo meeting now, there would just be seven of us, all men. Uh, if we're in an expanded meeting of the full Politburo, it might take up that side of the room, uh, not more. And that's essentially how the business of the party is done, and increasingly the party on behalf of the state in terms of core decision-making. But if you're sitting around that standing committee of the Politburo, it's worth asking ourselves a question, which is, if we apply the lens of looking at the world from China's perspective, out, as opposed to us applying what we would describe as a rational analysis of what China's interests should be, as we would perceive them from various capitals in the world, it's worthwhile seeing reality as seen through the eyes of others. The number one priority of Xi Jinping's standing committee is to stay in power. Never forget that. In a one-party state, this could be an arduous business. Therefore, if you look at the uh, security machinery and the intelligence machinery available to the Chinese state domestically, this is a formidable priority and reflected through uh, the deployment of formidable resources. Always conscious of what has happened in both the pre-49 and post-49 history of the party. Uh, number two uh, priority is to maintain the unity of the motherland. Uh, hence the absolute priority attached to Taiwan, hence the absolute priority attached to Hong Kong, the absolute priority attached to Xinjiang, and the absolute priority attached to Tibet. Hong Kong looms as a particular focus at present.
for those reasons. Those of you who are students of the Chinese tradition know that the good emperors in Chinese history are those who held the empire together, and the bad emperors are those who allowed the empire to disintegrate. It's a very simple but recurring morality play, starting from the time of Qin Shi Huang to the present. And this applies very much to China's own view through its current leadership about the paramount importance of holding this country together. And so, whereas it may not occupy the headlines every day, none of us should be any, under any illusion about where it sits in the priority of core interests of the Chinese Communist Party and through it, the Chinese government and state. Number three um, lies in the future of the Communist Party itself as a priority and the enormous blows to the party's credibility which have occurred over time. Firstly, through the Great Leap Forward, uh, secondly, through the Cultural Revolution, and thirdly, and more recently, through uh, endemic corruption. All these go to the heart of the legitimacy of this one-party state. And that is why you have seen such a formidable proportion of the resources of Xi Jinping's leadership dedicated to the anti-corruption campaign. He knows intuitively, he knows analytically that a corrupt party uh, loses the foundations of its legitimacy in the eyes of the people within a one-party state. And if you read carefully the text of his speech, just having been elected as General Secretary of the Communist Party at the Party Congress, the 18th Congress, in November of 2012, when he took his other six members of the Standing Committee across the road to the National Historical Museum, uh, across the other side of Tiananmen Square. His remarks then were very simple. If we do not clean up this party and deal with the cancer of corruption, our party will fall. Very few Chinese leaders have been as stark in their statements along such lines. He was, and he remains, deeply committed to that proposition. And hence what you've seen over the uh, two to three years since then, the most far-reaching uh, anti-corruption campaign, I believe, that uh, we have seen in the post-49 history of the party. Uh, in terms of any other rectification movement that we have seen outside the Cultural Revolution, it is the most formidable party rectification campaign uh, that we have seen as well. Therefore, the legitimacy of the Communist Party is an instrument not just for the interim government of China until some magical democratic transformation occurs, but for the long-term government of China requires the refurbishment uh, of its deep moral credentials. Which brings me to the fourth priority. The other pillar to the party's legitimacy is delivering the economic goods. You know that, I know that, and the history from their perspective has been a good history, at least since 78 when the doors to uh, domestic economic reform and opening to the outside world began with Deng Xiaoping's re-emergence as China's leader to become its paramount leader in the period following the third plenum of the 11th Central Committee uh, in November of that year. And since then, you know the data better than I, uh, we have seen Chinese living standards uh, go through the roof compared with where they were and we have seen this applied not just to a narrow group of people, but in fact the vast bulk of the Chinese population, with the exception still of about 100 million Chinese who still subsist below the poverty line. This has been a remarkable achievement and has been a core uh, pillar of the party's continuing legitimacy. 
But with recent fragility in China's economic performance and with a decline in the growth rate, debates emerging within the country much more openly about equality and inequality in the distribution of wealth uh, within uh, China's cities, between China's cities and the countryside, and between the coastal provinces and the inland, uh, this is a more difficult proposition. Hence the determination and the energy directed to the domestic economic reform program which was announced during the party uh, congress at the end, party uh, plenum at the end of 2013. It's an outstanding uh, blueprint in its conceptual framework. Um, again, you know the detail, moving from one economic model to another economic model. But this is anchored again in not just the objective need to increase Chinese living standards, on a sustainable basis, uh, but also to do so in an environmentally responsible manner, but on top of that, to continue to refurbish the long-term legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. That project, the Economic Reform Project Mark II, the movement to a new economic uh, model, uh, is still a work in progress. Uh, and the jury is still out in terms of its relative degree of success or failure. Which brings me to probably the fifth area of priority for the Chinese Standing Committee, which is dealing with all of us. Um, and it's important to keep this in context, that dealing with all of us uh, is in fact um, somewhat down the hierarchy of Chinese national uh, priorities, but still part of the hierarchy. Uh, of what is of core interest to the central organs of the party. But when we say dealing with the outside world, that in turn, uh, I think, is best conceptualised, as others have done before me, as a series of concentric circles. The number one concern for the Chinese in their concentric circle view of the world is, as I said uh, before, uh, ensuring that the unity of the motherland is maintained, hence the priority on the aberrant provinces. Uh, and territories. The second uh, in this uh, series of centric circles, but moving out somewhat, are of course China's 14 territorial neighbours, the largest number of uh, land borders that any country has in the world, other than the Russian Federation, which has the same number. Managing 14 uh, border relationships with countries as diverse as India, Russia, the DPRK, uh, Vietnam, uh, Burma and the rest is a tricky business. And if you look at what the Chinese prioritise as uh, Jia, this is a core sub-priority uh, within their view of the world and how they articulate their global, um, their global uh, foreign policy priorities. We then move to the next concentric circle which is let's call it wider East Asia. And that is where you see, in addition to uh, the second circle of countries, neighbouring countries, the intersection between China's interests strategically and those of the United States. Of course, US alliance relationships with Japan and with Korea and with the Philippines, despite recent articulations of complexity in Manila about um, where the Philippines may land over time. You also have uh, this dynamic at play in the relationship with Vietnam. You see it at play in the relationship now with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's Burma. You see it at play with uh, the strategic partnership evolving between 
Prime Minister Modi in India, uh, as well as with uh, President Obama and more broadly with the US relationship. And so that, together with uh, China's engagement with uh, the United States, paralleled determination to remain strategically engaged in East Asia and West Pacific, uh, with the almost universal uh, acceptance and welcoming of US allies and military partners in that region, constitutes this, what I describe as third concentric circle, where you see these two great powers rubbing up against each other increasingly and with increasingly heightened levels of friction in terms of activity in the air, in terms of activity on the high seas, and in terms of activities in space, including cyberspace. And then within this uh, priority, uh, concentric circles of priority, you then get to the rest of us, or shall I say the rest of you. We in Australia happen to fall within the third concentric circle. And so uh, that's where our interests diverge slightly, but therefore much for us to analyse together. And that is where China articulates and has begun to articulate in the last couple of years uh, its approaches to what I describe as China's new multilateralism. Um, as was mentioned before, uh, for my sins, uh, for the last two years I took on a job in New York as a president of the Independent Commission on Multilateralism. Those of you concerned about the uh, future of the UN multilateral system, this is online at the Asia Society. Please read it. Uh, if you're finding it difficult to sleep tonight, read it, get a glass of scotch, it'll knock you to sleep very quickly. Uh, that's what professional analysts of the UN sometimes find. Uh, but the reason I emphasise that report is the intersection of two worlds, which is the future of the UN multilateral system, itself suffering a whole series of external and internal challenges in terms of its future relevance to the great global challenges of our time, on the one hand, and the geopolitics and the geoeconomics of the rise of China on the other. And these two worlds therefore intersect. There are two or three speeches I would draw to your attention which I think are highly relevant to this uh, discourse. The first is the one which uh, captured my attention because I remember sitting in a Beijing hotel bedroom one night and watching it unfold, at least the uh, sanitised reported version of it, which is uh, Xi Jinping's address to the uh, Foreign Affairs uh, Work Conference of the party centre in November of 2014. Uh, there are a couple of versions of this which exist. It's not the full speech, but that's where for the first time you hear Xi Jinping talking about the need for a, uh, a new type of international system, a new type of international relations, a new type of great power relations, and the need to, quote, struggle, doujong, uh, for the future of the international order. These were new concepts. Now, these were quite different from the historical view which had been there since Deng Xiaoping of Taoguang Yanghui Jiebo Dangtou, uh, which is hide your strength, bide your time, never take the lead. Uh, a robust axiom of post-78 Chinese foreign policy. Instead, we had a new orthodoxy, broadly described as fen fa wei, which is go out there and prosecute a much more activist uh, Chinese foreign policy, but against these various kou hao, these various... Um, calls to action, a new type of international relations, a new type of international system, a new type of great power diplomacy, uh, and a struggle for the future of the international system. That got me very interested. 
and I've spoken to many Chinese leaders and analysts uh, in Beijing and elsewhere about what actually that meant. The second one I draw to your attention is the further elucidation of uh, those principles in Xi Jinping's address to the United Nations General Assembly last year, uh, in September of 2015. It was around about this time that you saw the announcement by Xi Jinping of this uh, billion-dollar China-UN fund for peace and development. And a little later, when we got to December, uh, for the uh, Paris Conference on Climate Change, resulting in the Paris Agreement, the $3.1 billion fund uh, with China and the G77 on climate change uh, adaptation and mitigation. In other words, we were beginning to see more flesh put on the bones of China's, as it were, engagement within and on the edge of uh, the pre-existing multilateral system. China had already begun to develop its own peacekeeping forces as an element of UN operations. And now China is one of the largest contributors, and perhaps the largest contributor today, uh, certainly amongst the P5 of UN peacekeeping operations. But since that speech of last year, you also see, not through that UN fund I referred to, in addition to the contributions to peacekeeping, in addition to uh, the contribution to climate change adaptation and adjustment amongst uh, developing countries, you also see now for the first time the beginnings of Chinese mainstream contributions to the UN humanitarian agencies. This is new. This, again, is something which is quite recent in China's development. And then the third speech, and I'll conclude on this um, as we go to discussion, which I draw your attention to, is literally um, only a week or so ago, uh, where we have building on Xi Jinping's remarks at the G20 meeting in Hangzhou, uh, where he refers to global economic governance requiring the international community to jointly ensure equitable and efficient global financial governance and to uphold the overall stability of the world economy, to jointly foster open and transparent global traded investment, to jointly establish green and low-carbon global energy governance to promote global green development cooperation. Again, these are forward-leaning compared with where Chinese language was before, but the platform, of course, is a G20 summit in China in Hangzhou. But that leads to what I think is a much more remarkable um, uh, statement, which is uh, his uh, remarks uh, to a study session attended by members of the political bureau of the CPC Central Committee in Beijing on the 27th of September this year, not long ago, uh, a week and a bit. And as it's been reported in the Chinese media, we have for the first time language such as this, and I quote Xi Jinping as saying, as the international balance of power has shifted and global challenges are increasing, global governance system reform has emerged as the trend of our times. Um, secondly, China must take the chance and ride the wave to make the international order more reasonable and just to protect the common interests of China and other developing countries. Thirdly, Xi Jinping said that the global governance structure depends on the international balance of power and reforms hinge on the change in that balance of power. Uh, and beyond that again, we have uh, him saying, we, that is China, must actively participate in global governance. We will take more international responsibilities and in doing so we'll try our best, but we will not overreach. And finally, what he says is, 
She stressed that China needs to improve its ability to participate in the process of rulemaking, agenda setting, publicity and coordination of global governance requiring for better building of a talent pool in this regard in terms of the Chinese personnel system. These are new things and I think they're worthy of our attention because uh, while the United Nations and the multilateral system has always been for the Chinese important ever since they resumed their seat on the Security Council back in 1971, uh, frankly the Chinese posture since that time has certainly not to be engaged in the funding or, or activities of multilateral development agencies. It's largely been constrained to a defensive Chinese position concerning its core interests on the Security Council. These reflect, these remarks coming from numero uno, uh, suggest a quite fundamental change in direction and why I therefore believe this means that we are going to have to look much more closely at what this will mean as it translates itself into reality on the ground. Uh, to conclude, um, I like the idea that uh, your institute and the Stiftung from which it comes is uh, named after McArdle. Uh, it's about maps and the way in which we view the world. I presume that's intentional. Uh, what I know of my German friends is that very few things are unintentional. But this is a very important uh, thought as we then seek to adjust our lens as to how China is now itself viewing the rest of the world and how we should respond to it. I should also say it's important that this institute of yours is in Germany because Germany is a country which China genuinely respects. I don't say that because I'm in Berlin. I don't say it because you're all Germans. Uh, I say it because I know it to be objectively true from the Chinese. In a different way, they have a form of respect for Australia as well, uh, which relates to the fact that we are uh, the West in the East and the East in the West. And we are deeply integrated into the institutional structures of everything in East Asia simply because of who we are and where we are. Um, but they know we come from the West. And for those two reasons, I think there is a deep structural need for you good folks here and us reasonably good folks down there uh, to collaborate in what I described earlier as a new Sinology to understand precisely where China is going in its global engagement and where global China will now go in terms of the new multilateralism, not just within the UN, its future operation which within the IMF, again within the last week as of October 1, the Renminbi was formally included in the uh, SDRs of the IMF and the Renminbi now represents the third largest holding, representing I think 10.7% of the total basket. Not insignificant and again new. And on the World Bank and the uh, multilateral development banks, I don't need to add to the debate here about the AIIB, where it goes to in the future, or what the Chinese themselves say about the significance of OBOR, One Belt, One Road, a very unfortunate acronym, I think. It sounds like a Death Star, OBOR. Mm -hmm. uh, OBOR. But, um, uh, but the initiative itself, uh, reflecting in China's own language, new forms of multilateral governance as well. So I think it is something in which we should all engage. Finally, as president of the Asia Society Policy Institute in New York, and we've been around for 60 years looking at these questions as an institution, uh, I think there is every opportunity for active collaboration as we seek to understand global China, seek to analyze how best we can respond to global China, 
And thirdly, seek to do so in a manner which preserves common peace and common prosperity and common sustainability. We're in the business of bridge building. That's what our institute does. We're also in the business of intelligent bridge building in finding destinations which work for us all. Thank you for your attention. Thank you so much, Kim, for these deep insights and um, close observations. Also, rather unusual conclusions and some suggestions that we can derive from it. I collected some questions that um, we at the Institute wanted to raise, actually, and I kind of, been, I'm now serving as the voice of, of uh, my colleagues at the Institute. One crucial question surrounded the um, kind of a judgment, what China is aiming at, actually. Mm. Is this um, more and more intense engagement in the UN system, for example? It's broadening more peacekeepers also. It's joining the, actually pushing forward climate initiatives and many other initiatives in other uh, UN institutions. Is this meant to be joining pre-existing multilateral institutions or transforming them from within? Are they reformist or revisionist? What is their ultimate goal? I won't use the words reformist or the words revisionist, but I will say from the public record that China is in the business of changing them. And that is new, because if you looked at historical language prior to two years ago about China's engagement with the multilateral institutions, it was China being a member, China being part of, and selectively in terms of which parts of the multilateral system. Uh, this is quite new uh, in terms of the language about China taking a much more way activist role, about China uh, defining what it regards as being a necessary adjustment to the international system, including the institutions which comprise it. And thirdly, to do so, and this is where I find particularly interesting, in a manner which flows naturally, to use Xi Jinping's term, the trend of our times, and mm. to draw to seize, great Chinese verb, this opportunity, when we see a change in the international balance of power. So therefore, the traditional Chinese critique of the UN, you will be familiar with. A bunch of white guys got together in 45 and said, let's build the UN, okay? We got the rules, the guys at Bretton Woods have already sorted out the other rules, got the institutions, got the GATT, got the bank, got the fund, everything's fine, thank you, they're all made in America. Now, unsurprisingly, those who are not there at the get-go, including communist China, though nationalist China was around that table, have some reservations, but also this is where there's a natural constituency of uh, aggrieved states from the G77 who went round that table as well. Remember, there were 50 states or 51 states at San Francisco. There are now 193 in the UN General Assembly. And the remainder of those states were basically colonised by a bunch of all of you Europeans um, and to greater and lesser degrees of um, culpability. I blame the British first, so um, I can do that comfortably in this environment. But also, that's where we come from as well. So when the Chinese and their G77 colleagues look at the, through their lens of historical experience and say, we didn't make these institutions, you did. Secondly, you made them as an image of yourselves. And thirdly, you made it in a way where ultimately you could control it in one way or another, though the veto structure of the Security Council is more complex than that. So 
That is the psychology which is brought to bear. What will be the precise roadmap for change and the content of change is an open question. I believe we've seen one innovation which is technically outside the system, which is the AIIB in terms of um, the uh, World Bank Organization and the regional development blank banks like the ADB. That is self-evident, but frankly, that doesn't worry me too much at all. And the reason I say that is because, for God's sake, we've had a bunch of other regional development banks which have had nothing to do with the UN in the past as well. For example, the Islamic Development Bank and a whole bunch of uh, institutions like it in various parts of the world. And thirdly, if we look at the scope of capital available to the uh, World Bank uh, organisation, including the regional banks, and if you added the AIIB, then frankly, it's still a bit of a drop in the ocean compared with global investment needs for infrastructure in the G77 and elsewhere if we're going to turn the sustainable development goals into anything approaching a reality. So I don't get terribly excited about the AIIB. On the broader, what I describe as mission within the UN, will we start to see Chinese initiatives in the Security Council? Question mark. Will we start to see China indicating what would be a more appropriate posture from their perspective on the Commission on Human Rights uh, in Geneva? Mm -hmm. Open question. Are we likely to see China changing uh, the way in which uh, the UN uh, machinery within the sustainable development agencies and the humanitarian agencies work as well? Open question. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know if the roadmap in Beijing has reached conclusion on those points. What they have reached conclusion on is that we're in the business of looking at that, examining it, and we're now politically prepared to do it as the opportunities arise. There's one significant positive side to all this as well, which we should emphasise. As China begins to become the UN's second largest funder, our Chinese friends, frankly, don't really like wasting cash. And when they look at the UN, they see its sort of litany of inefficiencies. I think there's also an interest in Beijing and how the hell do you make these institutions work more effectively and efficiently. Mm -hmm. uh, this is no bad thing, I know is somewhat akin to a German sentiment on these uh, matters as well, and I hazard to say an Australian sentiment as well. So I think we're going to have a mixed set of, um, of uh, initiatives emerging from Beijing, but we do not, not yet know their shape. My final point is this. What drives this, to go back to my principles of the new Sinology, what's China want? Is there a grand strategy here? We need to start doing work on this. Um, if I was answering that question three years ago, I would have said no. Mm -hmm. I think it's beginning to change under Xi Jinping. We can see the outlines of a Chinese grand strategy. Secondly, I think we should take Xi Jinping at his word when he says that we want to see a more multipolar world and a multilateral system in which the G77 have more prominence. His direct critique, for example, not his, but uh, that of senior officials of uh, the outdated elitist G7 uh, is something people should look at closely. Mm. It's a very sharp critique within Chinese official circles of the relevance of the G7 versus the G20. So I think a G77 developing country focus in how the governance of the UN machinery will be part of the coloration of what China seeks to do. Secondly, 
again, China with global interests now wants a global system which also is capable of providing order and humanitarian action in crises such as they've now faced with their diaspora around the world when Libya falls apart or when Yemen falls apart. These are real interests. And China, in my experience, prefers order over disorder in the world. And thirdly, but there's a factor which we just quietly ride over, which we should not. And for China, this is also a question of national respect. It's a question of uh, if you become a big power and a big country, then, you know, is it just a bunch of white guys who are going to run around the place, um, you know, devising institutions and telling everybody what to do? Uh, Why shouldn't we? Mm. And so there is, I think, a deep question of China's own sense of its... uh, desired respect as a global great power. And I think it's an amalgam of all those factors. But it's not likely that there's kind of a written, a spelled out grand strategy behind it. So let's return to Xi Jinping's role. I think they're working, I think, I think they're working, working on it. On it. If, if they hadn't worked on it to some level, we would not have seen the statements that we've seen starkly in Xi Jinping's speech of With a week or so ago. concepts and big concepts. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So there's work. What's the role of personality in all this? Because you have had the opportunity to, to kind of closely observe it, how Xi Jinping evolved in his foreign policy role, actually. How would you judge that his importance as a personality, as a leader in, in reshaping Chinese foreign policy? Fundamental. Fundamental. It's generally my view of leadership, by the way, in any political system. Structures matter. Socioeconomic forces matter. But if any of us think that we're just sort of dumb, mindless tools of some form of historical determinism. I think that's just utter nonsense. I've always seen it in those terms. I have a very non-Marxist view of history. (laughs) But uh, it's kind of more like a Carlylean view of history, uh, which is that, uh, to use Carlyle's uh, phrase of the mid-19th century in high Victorian England, is that great men matter, Mm. men or women, in the 21st century. 20th century, they're all men. In the 19th century, they're certainly all men apart from Catherine the Great, maybe. But uh, when you look at the political personality of Xi Jinping, this is worthy of considerable study, mm. as it affects the contour of Chinese policy. And he talks a lot about foreign policy, actually, yeah? regularly. In he way. talks yeah. a lot about it, yeah. and if you were to compare and contrast his statements on foreign policy with those of Li Keqiang, and Li Keqiang just addressed the General Assembly, Li Keqiang's speech does not contain anything that's new. Mm. The new stuff... Uh, is, in fact, came after the General Assembly Mm. at this uh, Politburo session, uh, study session on multilateralism and China and the global order. So it's very clear to me that the central driving personality behind this is, in fact, Xi Jinping himself, Xi Dada. Why is that the case? Mm -hmm. He's strong. uh, You can judge that. He's really, because you you see him acting, you have a lot of experience, he's really a self-confident personality, no shake. uh, Absolutely. I wrote a piece in Foreign Policy magazine in 2012 where I just said, get ready for a very strong, self-confident Chinese leader. Uh, This is not uh, government by committee a la Hu Jintao, let me tell you. It's radically different. Mm -hmm. And that was before any of it happened, but that was just my assessment of the guy. Secondly... Again, his sense of historical context and urgency, anti-corruption campaign, get this new economic transformation, the economic model right. Uh, deep frustrations, I think, in part of the, um, the part of his office about the level of uh, execution of this um, of this reform program announced in 2013, the uh, debacle which was uh, the um, Chinese uh, stock market uh, last year, which. Um, 
I think, produced um, great tensions uh, at the centre of the Chinese leadership structure and a burning sense of where this country called China must go, I won't say to fulfil its manifest destiny, because that's been used by other countries, uh, namely the United States. But if you look at the Zhongguo Meng, uh, he's quite clear about the importance of 2021, the centenary of the party, and he's quite, he's quite emphatic about the importance of 2049, so that the party can stand back in 2049. The 200 year goals, yeah, that's um, he's stressing all the time, right? Yeah, yeah and this is in his DNA, it's in his veins. Mm. The party's in our veins. Mm. This is what you're looking at, a strong leader driving the system, because the natural tendency of any bureaucratic system, particularly in China, which is so vast, is always towards inertia and entropy. Right, and end, sure. <laughs> so you've got to really <laughs> push it. So Kevin, if I got you right, if they don't have a grand strategy written down yet, um, they are still finding ways, they are using opportunities, this is really the, 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 the case clearly, openings for their foreign policy initiatives. We have a role in that, right? Foreign policy makers and also foreign think tanks, they can think about making good proposals then and then kind of co-shape yeah. China's role in all this. Hmm. And this would be a very kind of active uh, collaboration that's possible on working, on working out this, this new global role of China. I agree with that entirely. I mean, it's a bit like my view of leadership. It's thought leadership matters. If you've got a good, well-thought-out idea about, for example, China's future engagement in the UNHCR, you should conceptualise it, write it, get it translated and into the Chinese system, and within about a month it'll be read by every serious think tank in the country. And these things can have effect. They may not, but they can. I've seen stuff that a number of us have worked on over the years suddenly metastasize <laughs> or transform <laughs> Uh, in one way or another into, in the Chinese system and be taken on. I won't go to the detail of some of the things that I've worked on with them over the years. Uh, which have... Can you give an example here? Or no, 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 openly. Okay, no, right, no, yeah. no. What should we do about <laughs> UBOR then, the, the, the ugly acronym? But let's, let's face it, this is a major um, transcontinental initiative taken very seriously. They're putting a lot of money behind hmm. it. And there's kind of a skepticism in Europe, clearly, because the return on investment of many of those projects is completely unclear. There's also a criticism in China now within China getting stronger presently on the, the individual projects in Central Asia especially. What would be your suggestion for the German government how to deal with OBOR? How to... I'll make some general comments about mm -hmm. OBOR. I have a universal discipline of not providing public advice to right, any government right, right. anywhere. Yeah. Uh, if you wish to have an influence, don't provide it publicly. <laughs> it's kind of my experience. On OBOR, China is having a, uh, an encounter with reality. The history of OBOR is kind of interesting uh, for those who have looked at it um, closely and bureaucratically. The Chinese system was utterly unprepared for OBOR when it was announced. Uh, it had been something which one or two folk had worked on at the centre of the Chinese system. It was a classic proposal in the top drawer uh, to be taken out when a new administration comes in. And lo and behold, the, the whole system was told, we've now got OBOR. And then if you look at the mad scramble of 13-14 and 14-15 as, uh, as the bureaucracy and the think tanks tried to wrap their head around OBOR, it's a very interesting illustration. It was campaign style, new foreign policy initiative, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, well, no, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's like that. But I know this to be true, that the system was not ready for it. Secondly, however, like with 
most things our Chinese friends then engage in, it is then taken on comprehensively and with rigour. And you would have seen the way in which uh, it has been marshalled across the various countries in the world. And if you've seen the maps and the sub-maps, it would make uh, Mercator blush. There are so many maps around the place. But the bottom line is this, and this is why American diplomacy was wrong in opposing this thing, is that I would have said to our Chinese friends, fantastic, go for it, Uh, because uh, you're going to uh, help with large slices of capital deal with uh, uh, infrastructure deficits in some of the most unstable parts of the world. And therefore, given we've all said, if you want to deal with violent extremism and uh, latter-day terrorism coming from parts of the world where there is chronic underdevelopment and entrenched poverty, this is a great contribution. Point two, and welcome to the world of running a major uh, development bank anywhere in the world where a lot of the projects stink. and where you've got a whole bunch of national governments saying, have I got a deal for you? A whole lot of diplomatic pressure being applied, and then you lift it up and go, look, that is a really bad project, and put it down. That's where our Chinese friends are. And so that's why I think the Americans were completely wrong-headed in doing what they did. I think it's a great voyage of discovery for our Chinese friends to discover across these 70 states where OBOR applies how ugly and complex the world out there really is particularly when you're engaged in something as ambitious as this particular project. But why I'm supportive of OBOR, uh, despite the acronym, which I think is terrible, and uh, AIIB, is that if they can make a material difference to the non-provision of infrastructure across this vast swathe of uh, territory and humanity, that is to the collective good. And I think we should worry about geopolitics uh, much, much later. Kevin, thank you so much for these deep insights. This was highly inspiring. We learned a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.